0: so good to be with you today on pentecost sunday now it's so special to be with you guys today as we remember the coming of god's empowering presence that transforms his church and we remember on this day the church in acts and how they were utterly transformed from a timid people to a bold people ready to share the good news about jesus christ to build his kingdom and to serve the sick and to serve the poor. So it's a pleasure to be with you today celebrating that and also looking forward to tonight at Immerse, um, seeking more of God's empowering presence in our lives, seeking more of his Holy Spirit because it will be the Holy Spirit that transforms us. It will be the Holy Spirit working in and through us that will allow us to change a town, to change a nation, And to change this world. And so we've been in the middle of a a sermon series called Jesus Way. Looking at Jesus' ministry here on earth. And what exactly the implications are for us today as his friends and his followers the book of Luke, it was written as a narrative really to show, well, what exactly Jesus did and to call us to a radically different kind of life. And so we've been following Jesus on this journey as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem where he will be condemned and he will die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. And by chapter 20, Jesus has reached the end of this journey. He has arrived in Jerusalem and we are nearing the climax of Luke's gospel. And so today what we've been looking at in our reading is a parable of the tenants or also known as uh, the wicked farmers. Um, just to make sure we're not talking about like cheap booze, um, a parable of the wicked farmers. Um, and it's one of Luke's most comprehensive uh, parables and it's an extremely significant one because in it we have a prediction of Jesus' death we see Jesus making a really bold claim, a claim that he is the Messiah, the one long promised, and a promise, a promise that Jesus' death will not end God's plan. I really love flying, especially to warm and beautiful countries, uh, and especially like being in a big airport where you're just surrounded by people of different nationalities, you're hearing all these different languages, and it's really interesting. And they're flying to equally obscure or unusual places. And I often marvel being in the plane at being so high above the clouds. I'm just so grateful that I live in an era where we have that kind of technology, we live in a connected world, where in the space of a few hours, you can be on the other side of the globe. But so often, you know, when people come back from having a flight or a holiday, it's a horror story. Uh, they say, oh, it was the worst day of our lives. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. And then we were 20 minutes on the tarmac waiting on the runway. And uh, we were just so late. And I kind of want to say, well, what will next? Did you happen to fly in the air like a bird? Did you partake in the human miracle of human flight? I mean, everyone in that plane should be screaming, wow, we're flying. We're in the air. We're in a chair in the air in a lightweight metal bus with wings. And it's not falling out of the sky. And we're probably going somewhere nice. And I think that should bring amazement and gratitude, and so often how we respond to things in our lives and the good gifts that, that we're blessed with, sometimes we respond with incredible and profound gratitude, and sometimes we respond with, with ingratitude. I want you to hold this thought as we look at the parable of the wicked tenants. Because there's a number of things from this parable that we learn, firstly, about God, about Israel, and about humankind as a whole. And the first thing that we learn from the passage is that we have an amazingly generous God. Jesus was making no mistake when he was using the imagery of a vineyard, when talking to a Jewish audience, when talking to these teachers of the law and the chief priests. The imagery was highly symbolic because it's used so often in the Old Testament when speaking about Israel. For example, in Psalm 80, it says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. In other words, you, being God, transplanted the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root, and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea. Its shoots as far as the river. And the prophet Isaiah, when speaking about Israel in Isaiah 5, 7 says, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delights in. But then it says, he looked for justice and he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. And so the vineyard essentially is a place of God's blessing or promise where the Israelites have been placed and the Israelites and their leaders by this stage known as the Jewish people are symbolized by the tenants or the farmers in the story who've been given this land to live off and to fruitfully work on. And so in the story, there's this kind of rental arrangement that's made and this land is leased out to tenants, and the landlord, symbolizing God, goes away for a long time. So what has this got to do with the generosity of God? Well, God, like the landlord, has been incredibly generous to Israel. Firstly, he chose them in the Old Testament, and there was nothing massively special about them They certainly didn't do anything to deserve God choosing them. And then he rescues them as slaves from Egypt through signs and wonders. Then he makes a covenant with them. He has this special relationship with them. He leads them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. His presence is with them. And ultimately, through that particular people, The Messiah would come, the one long promised. He had shown them such love. And this really is a reflection of God's loving kindness towards us all as human beings. I want you to think of the most generous person that you know, just for a second. Or even an incredible act of generosity that you experienced in your life personally. We want to say today that God is infinitely more generous than that person or thing that you're thinking about. It's just in his nature. Just think for a second of all the good gifts that he has given us and the kindness shown to the Israelites. Well, that's a reflection of God's heart of generosity towards us. So if you are a Christian today, you have been shown incredible unmerited favor by God because he has chosen you in his grace. And yes, we are special to God, but there certainly isn't anything that would merit his choosing you, preacher included, and we're chosen in love, but we're not always lovely the second point from the passage is that we see some appalling ingratitude. So in verse 10, we see the tenants just showing this appalling ingratitude towards the landowner. You would naturally expect a landowner to want a return on his vineyard, either a financial return or to enjoy some of the crop, some of the fruit. And so he sends uh, this servant to to get the crop from the, the tenants. But instead, they strike the servant in the face or give him a severe physical beating. And really, the behavior of these tenants, it's harking back to the Israelites, who throughout their history were often very unfaithful. We see this in the Old Testament historical books, And also in the writings of the Old Testament prophets. They often went after other gods with a small g, rather than staying faithful and true to the living God, Yahweh. They often rejected God's laws for how they were to be a distinct and special people in their worship, in how they were to be governed, how they were to be a socially fair and just society. They were to be a fruitful people. That was their calling. They were, in a sense, to be a shop window that the rest of the world was to look into and go, that God Yahweh, he is incredible. And again, this is a microcosm of the human race as a whole because so often, too, we, we choose to do our own thing, to act as if God isn't there In fact, we all do that. It's in our nature. But the wonderful thing about this parable is that we see the persistent patience of God. In the parable, we see that the landlord sends three servants to the tenants of the farmers to get his share of the crop. The first servant, as we've seen in verse 10, He's either struck in the face or he gets a severe physical beating. But the landlord is so good. He continues to send servants. And each time we see an intensification in opposition to them. Because the second he's not only beaten by the tenants, but he's treated shamefully, he's spoken to in a really abusive way. And the third, it's even worse. He actually is badly wounded and thrown out of the vineyard. How does this picture relate to the persistent patience of our God? Well, in the Old Testament, we see God continually sending prophets to the people of Israel to call them back to him, to call the people of Israel, to call the people of Judah back to him back into his arms, back into the right worship of God and the right way of living. And time and time again, we see this either ignored or the prophets are ill-treated. And so in verses 13 to 15, we see a final option being pursued with great patience, with great reflection by the landlord. He thinks, if I send someone with sufficient rank, a son, surely these tenants will listen. And whilst servants and slaves carried some degree of authority in the ancient Near East, the son would carry the full authority of the father. These verses picture God's incredible Patience and tenacity, his pursuit of sinful human beings, because the Son represents the sending of Jesus, the beloved Son that we have heard about in his baptism and transfiguration in this gospel. So, in the ancient Middle East, it was common for estates and vineyards to be led out by an absentee landlord. And it was actually also common for the tenants often to attempt to seize control of the land. And in the parable, the tenants have this foolish belief that if they kill the son, they will be able to, under Jewish property law, to have claim over the ownerless land. And in reality, the truth of the murderous intent Of the Jewish leadership, like the tenants in the parable, will be manifested in the space of a few weeks. N.T. Wright comments Jesus, the rightful heir to the ancient prophets and so much more, the Son of God, has come to complete their work, challenging Israel one more time to give the covenant God the honor and obedience that is his due. In the story, of the vineyard, the son, he's murdered and he's cast out of the vineyard. In a few weeks, Jesus will be cast out of Jerusalem and suffer a shameful death outside the city gate. This is God's persistent patience towards people like you and like me that he would send his son Jesus Christ to die on a tree, to die on a cross, to pay for our sin, to pay for our shame and our brokenness and failure and invite us back into relationship with him. And so what we finally see in the parable is that there's a choice to be made about Jesus. There was a choice then and there's a choice now. In the story we hear that the landlord would come again and he would come again and kill the wicked tenants and give the vineyard to other people to enjoy. So in reality there are two options for how we see Jesus. Either we accept Jesus or we reject Jesus. And we see that there's judgment here. There's judgment on the Jewish leadership of the nation and those who would reject Jesus. And then there's blessing on others. And what we're seeing here as well is a transfer of leadership from the Jerusalem leadership to others. Who are these others? Well, firstly, they're the apostles of the disciples. And secondly, we hear that the blessing would go outside Israel to people who were not Jews, to the Gentiles. And we see this thread running from really the start to the end of Luke's gospel, from Simeon who prophesied that Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles. We see it in Jesus' genealogy. We see it in the Christmas story we like to retell of angels who said that Jesus would bring peace on earth, goodwill towards all men. We hear in the gospel that all flesh, all people, would hear and see God's salvation. And that's part of something that we're going to be doing tonight at Immerse is praying for the nations. God has brought his blessing to all peoples. And so we're going to be praying for mission tonight at Immerse abroad for those organizations that we're partnering with and seeking to partner with and just praying that God's kingdom would come across our globe. So in response to what Jesus has said, the Jewish audience say, no way, may this never be, God forbid. And so Jesus looks directly at them and he quotes a psalm, Psalm 118, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the irony of this usage is that this psalm was used regularly by the Jewish people for national comfort. Jesus is using it to indict them that they have shown opposition and been unfaithful to God because they have rejected his chosen one. The one that they have been waiting all along for, integral to God's rescue plan for humanity, they had rejected I want you to picture a dusty quarry and there's builders and there's masons. There's they look a bit like Johnny Tate. Uh, and I want you to picture that for a second. In the ancient building practices, when they were making a building, it wasn't really the, the structural integrity of a building. It wasn't in the foundations. It was in the cornerstone. So the cornerstone was the principal stone that was placed at the corner of the edifice. It was usually one of the largest stones. It was the most solid stone and it was the most carefully constructed stone of the whole building. A lot of effort would have went into it. It was the stone on which everything hinged. But the Jewish leadership had missed it. They had made a choice about Jesus that they were going to reject him. They'd missed the cornerstone. They'd missed that it's in Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins. And so as we come in for a landing, I want to firstly ask, do you have a relationship with the exalted stone? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the cornerstone? Or are you falling over the stone and being crushed by it? I would really, really, really encourage you today, if that applies to you, to not leave this place until you have done business with God, until you have invited him into your life. Or at least to explore, well, who is this cornerstone? Who is this Jesus? Secondly, I had this sense um, some of us might want to respond in a different kind of way. When Jesus taught this story, the leaders understood what it meant right away. We see this in verse 19. They knew it was directed at them. And they really didn't like it. And that was why they wanted to arrest him. I want to ask, when you learn something new or challenging about God, how do you react? I know my natural inclination is to pretend it's not there and just to leave it. How do you react? Do you obey God's word? Do you get offended? Do you react negatively? Do you react with apathy? Perhaps how you may want to respond today is to choose to build your life on Christ, the cornerstone today. That may be your response today if you're already following Jesus. So we are going to continue to worship now the band are going to come forward and lead us in another song and just a reminder today um, that we will have a prayer ministry team that meets over here so if you want to respond to anything from the sermon through the worship or you have any physical or emotional need they would really love to come alongside you and to pray with and for you so the band are going to lead us in worthy is the lamb